Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Christina E., Assistant Professor of Modern Japanese Literature at the University of British Columbia, who will be talking about her book, Colonizing Language, Cultural Production and Language Politics in Modern Japan and Korea, which was published in 2018 by Columbia University Press. Japan and Korea's relationship continues, like a lot of East Asian affairs, to be caught up in discussions of the past, whether ancient or more recent. Korea's experience of Japanese imperialism in the first half of the 20th century is arguably of most enduring significance within this, and questions of guilt, responsibility and atonement continue to pervade ties between these two countries, which otherwise have a great deal in common in terms of culture and interests. The complexities of today's relationship owe a lot to the lasting personal, cultural and political entanglements which empire invariably spawns, and Christina E.'s colonising language offers a fresh new linguistic and literary analysis of these entanglements and, equally importantly, their long afterlives. In a book which the author herself calls A Discursive History of Modern Japanese Language Literature from Korea and Japan, E's reading of life in and after empire is in its very form expressive of the period's tangled and irresolvable legacies. Nimbly moving back and forth between the Japanese metropole and the colonies and post-colonies, her narrative explores the work of, and bear with me here, both Korea and Japan-based Korean writers and Japanese writers living in Japan, Korea or other colonies. It quickly becomes clear that it's quite difficult to attribute any single identity to all of these people, but one thing they do share is use of Japanese language and an embeddedness in the colonial context which E interrogates. Among many other critical innovations, E carries her study of the complex and multivalent worlds conjured up in these writers' texts beyond the 1945 end of empire. And with this rare link to the present, she makes poignantly clear how issues of identity and voice are still shaped by imperial experience, asking what it might mean to think of a wider sphere of Japanese language literature that resists being anchored to today's inflexible nation states. But to discuss these and many other things in a pretty flexible way, I hope, uh, I'll say, Christina E., welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you very much for that very eloquent summary of the book. <laughs> well, well, I think uh, hopefully we'll get into a, a lot more of uh, even more interest uh, during our conversation. Um, but uh, before we uh, dive into the, the content itself, um, perhaps I could begin a bit by asking you uh, to say something about your background and how you came to focus on Japan and Korea, uh, literature and language and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I uh, received my PhD from Columbia University, and uh, I was working with Tomi Suzuki, who is a, a specialist of modern Japanese literature, but then also Ted Hughes, who uh, is a specialist of modern Korean literature. Uh, so very lucky to actually have those two figures there uh, guiding me from the very beginning. 
And actually, I began this project thinking that I would do a study on contemporary Zainichi Korean writers. Um, so just to explain this term very quickly, in case uh, there are listeners who may not know, uh, the word Zainichi uh, could be literally translated as residing in Japan. And of course, the most commonly refers to the ethnic Korean population in Japan, which emerged during the colonial period and was a result, of course, of the Japanese colonization of Korea. Uh, but anyways, uh, yes, I was very much interested in the rising attention that's been paid to writers such as um, Dikaisei, who was the first scientist Korean to win uh, this very prestigious Akutagawa Prize in 1972, uh, but then also people like Yang Ji, who was the first scientist Korean woman to win the prize uh, in 1988. But... Uh, yes, the, the more that I read their works and literary criticism about their works, the more that I found myself actually having to move back in time, uh, in part because the works themselves in some ways demanded that I do so. Uh, so there's this constant engagement with uh, an often very emotionally fraught acknowledgement of the legacies of Japanese imperialism. Yes, uh, I was also very acutely conscious of the potential danger, perhaps, of, of talking about scientific Korean literature as if it exists in a vacuum, uh, so as if it is completely severed from the larger Japanese or Korean literary landscape, when, of course, it is very much not. Uh, so that is, in a nutshell, how I ended up conceiving the parameters of the book, uh, which uh, is in some ways is not actually a book about Sainichi Korean literature at all, uh, but uh, about Japanese language cultural production from the 1930s through the 1950s, which is actually before the word Sainichi comes to gain its discursive force in Japan. Right. And I think this is what's so compelling about the way the book is framed, is, is, is that kind of uh, in inseparability in many ways of, uh, of, of, of the Korean and the Japanese elements and the, the difficulties in categorization. Um, I just wonder, uh, since you mentioned that you had the uh, good fortune of, of studying the, the Japanese and the Korean dimensions in parallel, um, I wonder about your sort of linguistic uh, training and background. Um, in, again, links and entanglements between the two languages is something that uh, is explored in the book. Um, so what was the sort of linguistic dimension of your own uh, uh, training and upbringing and so on? Uh-huh. Uh, so I was born and raised in the US. Uh, and my parents are from South Korea originally. So they came to the US and uh, I was born about a year after they had immigrated. And uh, my first language is English. And I grew up in an environment where my parents would speak to me in Korean, uh, but I would speak back in English. And it wasn't actually until much later that I realized, in fact, that the Korean that my parents were speaking to me was not a standardized Korean, but in fact, a dialect. Uh, they come from Chalanamdo, which has a very uh, distinct dialect. And so that was the language that I grew up hearing. And I only, the first time I ever visited Korea was when I was a high school student. And it was a shock to me, actually, to be navigating Seoul and thinking that I knew Korean, but in fact, realizing that uh, the Korean that I knew was not the Korean that people were speaking in the street to me. And I'm trying to figure out why this was. I guess um, I wish it, it's a, kind of a personal story, but one is linked, I think, also to the personal motivations of this book. Uh, that same trip is uh, when I first met my grandparents for the first time, uh, both sets. And I have this very vivid memory of um, meeting my grandfather in particular. And because at the time, again, 
um, I could listen, I could understand their Korean, but I could only speak back in English. And so it's a very stilted conversation that we were having. But as soon as he found out that I was learning Japanese, I just actually had started jo- learning Japanese in high school, uh, his face lit up. And immediately he switches to Japanese and he says, oh, you know, what what do you think of the language? Like, how far have you gone? And we start having a conversation. And I'm really happy because I can now use this language to have a conversation with our grandfather in a way that I can't do in either Korean or in English. Uh, But my parents, who are also in the room, uh, were so uncomfortable and so upset uh, with hearing actually my grandfather speaking in this language that my mother, in fact, she had to physically leave the room. Um, And again, as a high school student, 15 years old, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea um, what the undercurrents are. And it's, I think, only afterwards when I started to learn more about the history of Japan-Korea relations and then the the fundamental role that the Japanese language plays, right, in mediating those relations that um, I realized for my parents, right, Right. Um, hearing my grandfather speak Japanese was necessarily tied to all these issues of uh, very post-colonial um, issues of collaboration, um, of colonial history, and and so on. Sure, sure. Well, and and I, that uh, actually <laughs> says a lot. It explains, I, I think, a good deal about the attention to to nuance and 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 the delicate uh, way that you deal with so many of the issues that come up in the book. That 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 very personal contact with uh with with these kinds of questions um really yeah i think i think it it, it sets the the book in a very interesting context there um but we'll, we'll move on to discussing the book itself perhaps or, or at least uh, step by step but move into it um because actually before you even begin the introduction you have what i suppose many books have uh, an outline of uh how language has been dealt with in the text. You know, I think lots of uh, books of all kinds say something about how they've transcribed certain languages or how uh, translations are dealt with and so on. But it seems to me that in this case, the uh, note on on script and on on translation and so on is actually central to the argument in many regards, or at least something that sets things up pretty interestingly. So could you just say about, uh, say something about how you uh, dealt with, um, transcribing the text that you're dealing with, uh, things like how you managed Korean versus Japanese transcriptions of the sinographs, the Chinese characters that appear in the texts. Um, What what was your approach in uh, in digesting the the literature and the the written work that forms the body of the analytical material in the book? Uh Uh, Yeah, so as you mentioned, the book actually starts the very long preamble where I detailed the decisions that I made in transcribing names and terminology. And in some ways, the whole point of the book is, is that we cannot take the act of naming casually. Uh, this is the site where language ideology is produced and made visible. So I really wanted to spend that time outlining to the readers my decisions. Uh, just to give some context, the majority of Korean writers who wrote in Japanese between the 1930s and the 1950s published under Korean names, uh, but ones rendered in sinographs uh, without any glosses usually, which leaves the question of pronunciation open. Uh, others published under deliberately hybrid names, uh, with surnames, for example, that were marked as Japanese in origin, uh, but then with Korean given names. 
Uh, then we have the issue of transliterating names from Japanese language fiction. Uh, so in the case of stories written in Japanese, but set in Korea, for example, this question arises, uh, well, do you use the Korean rendering of character names uh, or do you transliterate them according to their Sino-Japanese pronunciations? Um, right, there are lots of different possibilities that are available there. Uh, but again, because I, I didn't want to impose my own idea of uh, right, an originary name or an originary reading, I essentially took different approaches depending on uh, the place and venue, a publication for a particular text, um, expectations of the target readership, uh, the workings of the text itself. Uh, but I also tried to include alternate readings whenever relevant in order to acknowledge the possibility of a multiplicity of readers uh, and reading practices. And that also goes yeah, for the romanization of author names. And um, in fact, I provide an index then at the back of the book, listing all of the major authors I analyzed and the sinographs for their names, their pen names, uh, different romanization conventions and so on, um, in part because the romanization of uh, Zion to Korean names in particular has been inconsistent across English language scholarship. But again, I do believe that uh, rather than try to determine some kind of normative model, uh, instead, it's important that we understand and interrogate the circumstances that have led to these uh, differences in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. And the way that you elucidate that, and the way it recurs throughout the text, I think it really takes us in a very vivid way into that world, into that uh, sort of hybrid sphere, the, the difficulties of, of separating um, these worlds and, and the kind of, uh, yeah, the conundrums, if you like, the imperial conundrums that the, the situation uh, throws up in a very uh, in a very everyday way because we're dealing with things as personal as names and, uh, and, and, and words that are used uh, on an everyday basis. Um, but that's great. We'll, we'll then uh, move into the, uh, to the introduction where I think you continue to, or, or you, you, you really outline the uh, parameters of, of the book and the, and the difficulties in separating uh, Korea and Japan as subjects um, in, in, your, uh, in, in this topic area. Um, so I wonder if you could start us off, and, and you've already alluded to this both with the story of your of your grandfather there and the uh, uh, dis discussion of the of the names and so on. Um, what part did language policy and, and and language in general play in the way that Japanese Empire was constructed uh, and and the, the way that policy was formed, and how spe specifically did the Korean experience of this unfold? Uh -huh. um, so as I mentioned, in the book, I focus primarily on the time period from the 1930s through the 1950s. Um, and I do so in part because this is a crucial period of time in which writers in both Korea and Japan were forced to directly confront or rearticulate the relationship between uh, language literature and uh, various forms of belonging, whether national or imperial or otherwise. Uh, so in thinking through this relationship, I'm trying to show how contemporary divisions between, for example, uh, Korean versus Japanese literatures uh, cannot be understood apart from the ideologies of language that were generated out of the trajectories of Japanese imperialism. 
Here, I'm very much indebted to uh, the work uh, that uh, various uh, linguistic anthropologists have done, for example, Judith Irvine, who offers a very useful definition that I borrow in the book, uh, where she talks about language ideology as um, a cultural or subcultural system uh, of ideas about social linguistic relationships, she says, uh, together with their loading of moral and political interests. Uh, but then I'm also looking at uh, scholars such as Yong Suk, who has written about what she calls the ideology of the national language, the ideology of Kokugo, and how uh, various kind of moral and affective uh, kind of emotional ties that were put into this idea of a national language were then utilized for nation-building projects within Japan, but then also then um, in the Japanese empire. And in terms of uh, in terms of the consequences that had for uh, the emergence of something that uh, we now think of, you know, in in the twenty first century as Japanese literature and Korean literature. Um, I mean, what, what, does that complicate the picture of what these labels actually apply to? I, I mean, how did how did a sort of canon uh, emerge within the imperial space, and and what has been the sort of longer term face of that? Hmm. Uh, I think that both of these categories, uh, Japanese literature and Korean literature, uh, they presume a certain national, um, ethnic and linguistic confluence that's not at all innocent or casual. Uh, what I mean by that is that these categories are not descriptive labels uh, so much as legitimizing forces, right? They're boundaries that privilege some at the expense of others in ways that are necessarily linked to larger structures of power and to historical contingency. And of course, that's where uh, this, uh, this question of literary canonization also comes into play. Uh, and by the way, uh, because this is a podcast, you can't see me doing it. But whenever I say something like Japanese literature or Korean literature, I'm doing air quotes. So it's, <laughs> these terms themselves are, have been um, right, uh, kind of contested throughout the, the very beginnings of uh, their conceptualization. But um, and this also links, I think, uh, as you suggest, actually, uh, back to your earlier question about how I came to be interested in this topic. And then I guess my own linguistic background um, until recently, the Japanese language texts uh, that were written by Koreans during the period that I look at uh, have received relatively little critical attention. Uh, one of the reasons is that following the end of the war in 1945, uh, Korean was claimed as Korea's national language and Japanese language texts were purged from the canon. Uh, but at the same time, these same texts were excluded from Japan's literary canon, which is reconfigured along national uh, rather than imperial borders. Uh, but um, as I argue in the book, the continuities of colonialism continued even into the post-colonial period. And you really see this embodied uh, in the creation of the, the so-called Dainichi, or resident Korean community. Mm. And well, I think that's why uh, it's for that reason, really, that the, the sort of legacies and the, and the subsequent treatment that some of these writers who, as you mentioned, have really fallen between or slipped through the cracks, uh, uh, both to scholars, but also, I guess, to, to reading publics. Um, it's, it's in a way very expressive of, of uh, empire and its, uh, its kind of afterlife that, that uh, it's not something we always immediately think about. But I think you, you make a very strong case for why. Uh, looking at this dimension of uh, of imperial experience is so important, um, but we'll uh, move on then. Uh, I think into uh, into the first chapter. The book kind of is divided. Uh, in, you have six chapters, and the first three dealing with the period up to 1945, and and then uh, the, the, the second uh, half 
kind of treating the post-1945 period. Um, and throughout, you provide a really great kind of background in, in terms of what's going on historically and how that interfaces with the, the works, the, the literary texts you're, you're dealing with. So uh, we, I mean, this is probably known to many listeners, but um, Japan's uh, involvement or kind of a, well, invasion and, and, and imperial projects in Korea started in 1905 and uh, strengthened in 1910. And, and then really, uh, it wasn't, but it, but it was not a continuous project from then all the way until 1945 in terms of being consistent throughout. Um, so I just wonder, uh, in your first chapter, you give us a bit of a picture of how uh, the literary landscape in Korea, uh, as uh, as occupied by Japan, uh, sort of shifted between those very early um days of, of, of colonization in the 1900s and 1910s and up to the 1930s and 40s. So what were the sort of key events that played a role in uh, changing Japanese language policy and therefore the linguistic and literary landscape in Korea um, in the sort of, uh, well, later period of, of empire? Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the arguments that I make in this chapter is that uh, this ideology of kokugo, again, to borrow from Young Suk, this ideology of the national language is really fundamental to understanding how Korea was positioned within Japan's larger imperial project from the very beginning, uh, but then particularly actually um, starting in the 1930s. Um, and the example that I give is that uh, during the colonial period, language policies in colonial Korea and Taiwan, uh, in fact, they employed the term kokugo, uh, the national language, and not nihongo, uh, or Uh, the Japanese language. So Koreans who were speaking Japanese were said to be speaking the national language. Um, And this distinction is an important one because it reveals some of the illogical reasoning behind Japan's colonial strategies. Um, One of the justifications for colonization was Japan's claim that it was fighting Western imperialism. Uh, So in order to set itself apart from Europe and the U.S., the colonies had to be made both part of uh, one with Japan, uh, at least on the level of discourse. So uh, we see these arguments being made uh, long before the 1930s, but as you say, it's um, by no means unified or and it's constantly changing for a long time, uh, again, for purely practical reasons as well. Often Koreans who are speaking Japanese, they have to learn the language first. And so for them, it's conceived as a form of uh, a foreign language. But um, as I argue, the Second Sino-Japanese War, uh, 1937, profoundly influences then both the quantity and the tenor of Japanese language writings and film by Korean colonial subjects. So that's one of the key kind of watershed movements that I identify. And it's in part because Korea as right, a geographical entity was seen as a crucial bridge to the continent. And Japanese policymakers wanted to ensure that Korean subjects would be loyal to the Japanese empire. Uh, so they launched a number of different campaigns and strategies to try to inculcate that loyalty in what is now referred to as uh, kouminka, or imperialization. So uh, within that, Japanese language education or uh, kokugo education is seen as crucial to this process, uh, in part because kouminka proponents are arguing that fostering love for the Japanese language among the colonized population would inevitably lead to love for the empire that that language represented. Mm, mm. Well, that's uh, it's it's very interesting the way, the way that you trace out the the, the main means by which they sought to sort of communicate politics through uh, through linguistic policy. And it occurs to me actually, just as you were saying it then, that um, this quite um, in some ways quite empty term of kokugo, the the 
national language um, is, uh, well, you you yourself account for how this shifts later on, but um, in the Taiwanese case, uh, it just made me think that when Taiwanese people today say guoyu, they mean Chinese, they mean the the kind of um, standard language of the the mainland. So um, it's interesting the way that this has been sort of traded uh, between uh, the the, the kind of East Asian uh, realms that, that many of which came under Japanese empire during this period. Um, but uh, you, you also kind of go into how uh, this uh, uh, policy that, that sought to um, delineate uh, who was in the empire and, and what place they had led to uh, definitions for Japan and its people also being very numerous and very overdetermined from terms like Nihonjin, uh, Naichijin, Nihon Minzoku, all of these terms that we use for Japanese people and, and Koreans, uh, their place within that was a little ambiguous. So from a Korean point of view, could you say a bit more about, I mean, not not, not just because you are of Korean background, but Koreans then, where were they fitting into this picture of being subjects or people uh, of the empire? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, one of the key things about Kominka and this word, it's, uh, I mean, abbreviation. So Kokushinminka, to become an imperial subject, right? To become, right, a loyal subject of the emperor, empire and emperor means in some ways that it gets applied throughout the empire, including mainland Japan, uh, what is called Naiji, the kind of the interior, the inner lands. Um, and so while a lot of Korean writers who are writing in Japanese during this time are trying to argue is that uh, they, right, they actually uh, can be on an equal footing with their mainland Japanese peer. They have the right uh, to speak, to represent the empire uh, in the same way that their mainland Japanese peers do. And some uh, go so far as to argue that um, they then deserve uh, the same rights, the same legal rights, the same uh, kinds of social benefits as their mainland Japanese peers, which had uh, consistently been denied to them uh, throughout the history of Japanese colonization of Korea. So um, by using the national language, uh, so-called national language, by, um, in fact, right, uh, taking the logic of uh, imperialization, they tried to use it for their own ends and to try and uh, decenter, I think, in some ways, uh, the, the metropole and then recenter it in Korea and recenter it through their Japanese language writings. Of course, the flip side to that is, of course, um, any ability to do so or any uh, attempt to do so had to be done through Japanese. Um, so this absolute incorporation of Koreans into the empire also meant um, their absolute incorporation uh, within and through um, the ideologies of the national language. Mm, mm. And this, yeah, this is uh, the subject of chapter two as, as, as we move through the way that uh, I guess uh, the the policies actually played out uh, on the ground in terms of how um, material uh, that, that was produced by Korean authors sought to enter into uh, into Japanese uh, markets and, and and reach Japanese readers. Um, what about the the kind of commercial side of that? Um, did how did publishers approach uh, dealing with um, writing by Korean um, authors and 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 uh, what were the sort of business opportunities that? Uh, people within Japan, within the metropole, saw in uh, in, in developing uh, career-related material? Yes. Uh, so the 1930s 
in part because, right, um, the escalation of war, the 1930s witnesses a crackdown on publishing throughout the empire. Uh, we have increasing censorship regulations, uh, material restrictions, so paper becomes a regulated commodity uh, in different forms of government pressure, of course. Uh, mainland Japan is no exception. And publishers are very urgently trying to figure out how to accommodate both the mounting pressures of war uh, and the demands of the reading public. Uh, and so they turn to the colonies. Uh, Manchuria, notably, is, uh, I think, throughout the 30s and 40s, featured most prominently in the various leading journals of the day. Uh, but Korea reemerges, too, as a topic of interest. Uh, but in a lot of the journal articles and special issues that subsequently get published on Korea, uh, there's this general refrain that, in fact, the majority of mainland Japanese readers don't know much about their own colony still. Uh, and some Korean writers take advantage then of that ignorance um, to link back again to the previous question. Uh, so they're able to gain a readership by writing about Korea. Um, but many of them find themselves in a double bind then of having to use, again, the language of the colonizer in order to speak to uh, or against them, uh, which is a dilemma that's certainly not unique to Korea, uh, which many post-colonial scholars have written about uh, in other contexts. Uh, so this is something that I tried to unpack throughout the book. Um, in fact, the ways in which the meaning of a text is always produced uh, through not only the form of narrative itself, uh, but also through the larger mechanisms of literature as an industry. Uh, so the material circulation of journals, uh, paratextuality within journals, uh, the workings of the economic market and other types of factors. And this is true of all texts, but uh, becomes a particularly salient issue for colonial writers, uh, as they are already constrained by the workings of colonialism itself, which, uh, as we all know, is a system of exploitation meant to serve the interests of the colonial state. Uh, and so the, the hierarchies that are developed between mainland Japanese publishers who write have the economic um, and just various other types of resources to uh, solicit materials from uh, colonial writers, but then also have the ability to market to to uh, kind of reframe, to uh, situate right, their writings in their journals in a particular way is um, something that I look at in this, in this chapter, chapter two. Mm, yeah, you bring out this uh, one particular figure, uh, Kikuchi Kan, uh, who uh, seemed to have many sort of hats that he wore as a novelist, playwright, and a, an entrepreneur, a promoter of some of these uh, career-related works. Um, could you could you say a little bit more about him? Mm-hmm. Kikuchi Kan is one of the major figures uh, in the modern Japanese literary landscape, uh, not only because uh, he himself was a writer, he was publishing a lot of popular fiction, actually, himself, but um, was a businessman. He was turning various uh, kind of literary markets to gold, <laughs> it seemed like, or he was using uh, making a profit during a time when uh, making a profit was increasingly difficult. So, uh, and he himself had uh, what looked like, um, or to me, a, a very personal interest in Korea in particular, he had traveled there himself, but he also had a very professional interest, again, taking advantage of uh, metropolitan interest in the colonies and then using that uh, to his advantage. And uh, he set up a lot of different mechanisms, uh, particularly different types of prizes to try and promote uh, actually a Japanese language literature that encompassed all of the colonies. Uh, this is the same man, in fact, who establishes the Akutagawa Prize and also the Naoki Prize which are two uh, very important literary prizes that are still around in Japan. Um, so even as he's trying to develop a domestic market, he's also actually trying to incorporate Korea into that domestic market. And a lot of the writers uh, who later 
uh, become well known for their Japanese language writings, uh, but who were born and raised in Korea. Um, these writers include Kim Sa-young or Chang ak um, They too had uh, got their start through Kikuchi Khan's journals uh, and through the various uh, literary prizes that he set up. And this, yeah, this seems so important, the, the way that you lay out the mechanisms that underlie uh, a book that appears uh, in, you know, on the markets that may just look like a, 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 an artifact floating in space or just something that is isolated. But, but really, you give such a strong sense of the uh, underlying, uh, as you mentioned just earlier, the colonial logics that um, really Kind of underpin uh, the cultural production such as this, and um, it's and and the way that it's so difficult in uh, colonialism, which, as you say, is 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 a is a violent and and very uh, well immovable. What looks like an immovable project, um, how the nuances of of business and politics and language, and they're all they're all bound up together uh, in a way that uh, makes it crucial to understand um, these things in order to see how how books and how uh, how these novels uh, and, and, and things appeared um, to the Japanese readership at the time. Um, so uh, we'll move on uh, to the final chapter of your first half here, chapter three. Um, and uh, here you go on uh, to explore a little more the, the, this idea of um, kokumin bungaku, national literature, um, uh, as, as a kind of construction, um, as you say, Kikuchi Khan and other figures were involved in sort of forging this. Um, so in this process of trying to generate a unified imperial literature, a national literature for the Japanese empire, um, what consequences did that have for distinctions between Korean and Japanese languages or, or, or life worlds or, or, or literatures indeed? And what was the fate of Korean literature, for example, in Korean uh, under these circumstances? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, this term, kokumin bungaku, uh, I should, I guess, clarify it. We can, the term itself, um, uh, we can trace it back. It begins appearing in Japanese journals as early uh, as the 1870s and 1880s as part of larger Meiji discourses on nation building. But the term as I'm using it um, is really linked to these movements in the late 1930s and um, very much uh, kind of springing into action in the early 1940s, um, where th- um, there's this idea that literature um, was supposed to be uh, something in which state nation and people were combined into one seamless whole. So in other words, it's it's fascist. Right? It's, it's a form of fascist literature. And uh, it's it's no coincidence that the reappropriation of this term kokumin bungaku is happening in conjunction with the establishment of, uh, for example, the New Order movement in Japan. Uh, but I mean, this, these are movements that are happening in Italy and Germany as well. Uh, and this global context is also important to keep in mind. Uh, so Kokumin Mungaku was simultaneously configured both as a national literature uh, and as a type of world literature uh, that can not only compete with the output of other nations, uh, but also might stand in opposition to them, uh, particularly from perceived influences from the U.S. Uh, and Britain. I find it very interesting that it's this term, uh, Kokumin Bungaku, and not for example, a kōmin bungaku, a literature of imperial right, subjects that really caught on in late colonial Korea. Uh, although, of course, imperialization, uh, kōminka, continues to uh, undergird and uh, kind of inform uh, definitions of kōkumin bungaku because it was understood to be an imperial literature, uh, but one that, again, crucially gestured to a body of texts that were not necessarily written in or about the metropole. 
And one of the reasons why both Korean and Japanese writers within Korea, so not only Korean writers in Korea, but then also actually, uh, for example, Japanese, uh, mainland Japanese writers who had moved to Korea were kind of working within Korea. Um, the reason why they both championed Kokumi and Bungaku was, uh, again, because in doing so, they could emphasize the constitutive role of the peripheries in the making of a new East Asian order. Uh, so uh, this is a time when we see uh, really an explosion of Japanese language literary production about and uh, from the colonies. But of course, um, and as I argue, uh, this attempt right to uh, create an identity of the imperial subject that could supersede established colonial hierarchies, this attempt can only be done really paradoxically uh in the colonies uh, and continued to be marginalized in terms of uh, thinking about the contrast between literature produced by Japanese within mainland Japan and then literature produced outside of it. Mm, yeah, I mean, you you, you cite uh, authors, for example, Obi Juzo uh, and, and, and other Japanese writers, as you say, based in Korea, which really helps to give us a sense of just how complicated and sort of muddied the waters were in terms of... Um, uh, the, the, yeah, again, the, the act of separating uh, Japan and Korea in this uh, in this literary world at the time um, does become very difficult. Um, and uh, you, you, again, the, the, to refer back to something we discussed towards the beginning, you uh, bring out in this chapter really clearly this um, sort of uh, dancing between different possible readings of names and uh, and and the ambiguity of certain characters within texts uh, in terms of their their background that uh, you say um, fascinatingly would perhaps have allowed uh, certain texts to get around censorship, but yet would have been quite legible to certain readers who would have seen a figure as a certain representative of a kind of person within the empire, but maybe wasn't so transparently so to imperial censors uh, as a result of, of their names just being represented in in, in Hanja and Kanji uh, in sinographs that, that you know meant that they, they, they had a sort of ambigu- ambiguous um, identity in that regard. So um, all of that is absolutely absolutely fascinating. Um, but we'll continue forward uh, into the post-imperial era, perhaps uh, to 1945, uh, and and what resulted from this. Uh, period of, of quite strict language and, and, and literary policy um, that we discussed so far. Um, even beyond the, the war years and, and, and the end of empire in, in 1945 that everyone is pretty familiar with, um, how, how was this uh, end of empire or the, the, the collapse of, of, of the Jap- Japanese imperial project in mainland Asia uh, greeted differently by Japanese and Korean writers, including those Koreans who were based in Japan? Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, I think I touched upon this in the introduction, but the again ter- issues of terminology. So the terms that are used to describe this immediate kind of post nineteen forty five situation uh, are different depending on if you're talking about Japan or Korea. So uh, in Japan, this time period is often just simply referred to as the post-war, right? Sengul, uh, the immediate post-war period, whereas in Korea, it's referred to as post-liberation. So already we can see how um, the the idea of August 1945 as this absolute rupture is being conceptualized differently according to the national um, histories that then emerge uh, out of that moment. 
And um, what I think is relevant in terms of uh, language and language ideology is that after 1945, uh, for Korean writers, this word national language, uh, it uses right the same sinographs and it's appropriated again um, Kind of as is, but it's now read in Korean as Kugel and is oriented towards the Korean language, uh, which results, uh, again, kind of reconfiguration of the literary canons. And this is the case, too, with Korean writers in Japan during the occupation period. Uh, so they use the word Kokugo, uh, national language, to refer to Korean, and then they use the word Nihongo to refer to Japanese. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the changing political status of Koreans in Japan during this time. And in fact, many writers, uh, particularly Korean leftist writers, deliberately uh, use this word kokugo to refer to Korean in order to emphasize the liberation of Korea from Japan. Uh, but um, as we know, uh, what may have people uh, celebrated as liberation and uh, had high hopes right, for liberation very quickly turns out not to be the case in Korea. What we see happening is already, right, by 1945, there's partitioning of the peninsula, uh, Soviet forces, um, the northern half of the peninsula and U.S. forces in the south. And then, of course, in Japan, we see a period of allied occupation and Koreans who uh, remain in Japan during this time uh, very much are acutely aware, again, um, of the fact that they're not, in fact, liberated at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thinking about this and then thinking about, too, then how the terms themselves that are used to think through and talk about uh, the colonial period, which is now configured right as the past, um, as a past that needs to be uh, occluded in some ways. Um, uh, the terms themselves are emerging, right, as contemporary terms are changing. Terms are changing, uh, but that ironically precludes them from coming to terms uh, with the terms, I say, of the past. Mm, mm. Yeah, the way that kind of post-war or post-liberation uh, discourse is freighted with the terminology and the, the, the linguistic legacies, really, of, of, of that earlier period. Um, you bring that out very powerfully. Um, also, in this, this first uh, chapter of the second half, or the, the chapter four, um, you introduced us to um, Kim Tal-su, uh, who you describe as the, the sort of father of, of Zainichi literature, um, of, of, of uh, the literature of, of those Koreans, Based in Japan, um, could you say something a bit more about him and and what his uh, what his work what light his work sheds on this period? Mm -hmm. uh, Kim Jong yes, uh, is really held up as um, major kind of the starting point in some ways or the father of Zionist Korean literature in part because he had a huge hand in uh, conceptualizing and in promoting. Uh, Right, science Korean literature as a visible category within Japan. Uh, so he's somebody who, uh, he was born and raised in colonial Korea, grew up speaking again Korean in the household, but was educated under the Japanese colonial educational system. He moves to mainland Japan uh, when he's 10, actually, so when he's quite young, and thereafter he remains in Japan with his family. He is uh, very leftist during this time, and um, he's an important example, I think, of a Korean writer who became uh, heavily involved in both politics and literary culture in Japan, uh, which, especially during this period, were considered one and the same. Uh, so, for example, he was a member of various Sainichi political organizations, uh, but also a member of the Japan Communist Party um, and uh, this leftist literary organization called Shinhyun Bungakai, uh, or Organization for New Japanese Literature. 
So uh, it's just a reminder that, uh, I mean, Koreans are very actively kind of engaging conversations with their Japanese peers, but vice versa, too. So a lot of these Japanese organizations are actively recruiting uh, Koreans during this time, in part because uh, right, the inclusion of right, former colonial subjects could uh, serve as proof, uh, they thought, um, that they were providing a united front against fascism, against imperialism, against feudalism, uh, and so on. Mm. Mm, interesting, yeah, and, and 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 you kind of explore this this further the the sort of uh, Zainichi embeddedness in broader Japanese trends in this immediate post-war period, the the occupation period when when uh, of course the United States forces are, are still in Japan um, immediately after the war. Um, so could you say uh, something about the the literary trends, if you like, that that kind of evolved in in Japan uh, in the aftermath of the war, and and how uh, Korean uh, writers sought to express their identities through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kim Dao-soo is, again, is um, a good example, I think, of thinking through what's happening in immediate post-war Japan, uh, which uh, sees the resurgence of, of Marxism. Right? Marxism enjoyed a considerable amount of prestige in Japan and elsewhere in Asia, uh, in part because of what was seen as its ability to resist imperialism and militarism. Uh, a lot of Marxist intellectuals and activists during the 1930s and 1940s had been thrown into jail, uh, right, by the uh, Japanese state for their anti-imperial and anti-war writings and uh, speeches. And it's precisely because of that, that, you know, when they're reemerging in this post-war climate that they can say, uh, well, right, we we never right, participated in the war. We were the ones from the very beginning saying uh, that this was bad. So they're able to gain a certain uh, kind of uh, legitimacy. And uh, people like Kim Darsu and uh, other Sainichi Koreans during this time uh, are joining these movements uh, in part because uh, they, too, agreed uh, with the general tenets that were laid out. With that said, um, there's always right. There was always tensions within uh, organizations like the Japan Communist Party, which very much prioritized, once again, national interests over international ones, and um, often. Uh, did not actually uh, think about what it might mean, uh, right, that Koreans in Japan are still uh, very much uh, disenfranchised and uh, right after 1952 are stateless and um, so on. These are not issues that these organizations are really addressing. And so Kim Rasu, he forms his own organizations and um, he's trying to create uh, journals and other kinds of outlets uh, through which to explore, I think, and to center uh, Zainichi Korean subjectivity. But again, this task is complicated by the fact that uh, he and other Koreans who remain in Japan during this time, they have to do so in Japanese, which was itself the embodiment of colonialism writ large. Uh, So in Chapter 5, I tried to uncover the ways that language ideology intersects with Cold War politics during this time to create the conditions uh, in which uh, Zainichi Korean literature as a seemingly self-evident category emerges. Uh, and you know, from the very beginning, it's defined as literature written in Japanese, but not considered to be Japanese literature. Right, right, and, and uh, it is. It does seem extraordinary, really, the persistence, even right up to the present, of, of, of unawareness uh, that you mentioned in the case there of the Japanese communists, but also uh, Japanese society at large of of Korean experience. Um, 
in Japan and, and, and what it means that they've been stateless for uh, long periods uh, up to up to the present uh, and and um, yeah the, the the way that you suggest the um, writers were trying to express this and trying to deal with um, their positionality their, their subjectivity within um, post imperial Japan um, I think you, you bring all of that out extremely well um, in terms of the actual the, the kind of more thorny or even more thorny issues uh, of the colonial legacy and of the past. Um, you discuss in Chapter 6 uh, questions around collaboration, responsibility, um, and how um, Korean and Japanese uh, people uh, really negotiated their way around um, who was involved in the imperial project, who was uh, responsible. Um, so how did that how did that sort of find it work itself out in the uh, in, in literary works um, as distinct Korean and Japanese nation states uh, and their associated national literatures and languages uh, were forged in the, the 50s and beyond mm-hmm. uh, so uh, in both post-war Japan and post-liberation Korean again I'm using these terms kind of with a uh, quotes, yes. <laughs> um, the question of collaboration and war responsibility becomes an extremely urgent one, uh, related again to this issue of making sense of, uh, but then also right, potentially correcting the evils of the past, uh, as it was said. Uh, but the very fact that there emerges, uh, once again, these two different terms, uh, so war responsibility versus colonial collaboration, uh, shows how narratives of the past were bifurcated along national lines after 1945, which um, then right um, plays a huge role in uh, redefining literary boundaries as well. So, when referring to the Japanese involvement uh, with the Japanese with Japanese involvement to the Japanese state, uh, Japanese individuals who uh, were involved in promoting right uh, kind of, uh, war rhetoric or uh, colonial agendas, the term that was overwhelmingly used after 1945 was sensor uh, So, literally, someone who is responsible for the war. Uh, and so just in this invocation of the word war, uh, one can tell that the context here is the 15-year war and the military aggression that was waged against China and the allied powers. Uh, but in newly liberated Korea, in contrast, the word that was used to describe collaboration often uh, was chinopa or shimichihan Japanese, uh, pro-Japanese, uh, someone who is close to the Japanese. Uh, so in other words, uh, it was the Japanese colonization of Korea that became the base context for definition and ethnic Koreans who were the target of this term. Uh, and then I go on and talk about how, I mean, the fact that it was not imperialism, but war culpability that became the dominant discourse in Japan had uh, much to do with U.S. occupation policy um, and uh also kind of has to do too with historically the ways in which during the colonial period, the borders of Japan, Nihon, uh, were historically overdetermined, uh, as you mentioned actually earlier in our conversation. Uh, so this word could stand in simultaneously for empire and nation. Um, and so the post-war imagining of Japan as a nation state consisting primarily of right, the islands of Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, and Shikoku was not a uh, a radical redefinition so much as the ascendancy of a discourse that had already existed in some form, uh, which then explains to just how easily it's, uh, how seamlessly it almost seems as if, right, um, the memory of a time in which uh, Koreans had theoretically been included right in the, in the category of Japanese literature could easily be banished or erased. 
Mm. Yeah, and it, well, the story that you tell here is one that is as much of of memory as it is of, of forgetting. Really, the the uh, selectiveness of of how things are memorized or memorialized and and recalled, and how that uh, is rooted in senses of where national territory is and 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 what the boundaries of of historical projects like uh, empire, uh, what what kind of boundaries they fell within. Um, uh, all of that is is so important as you uh, so so clearly lay out. Um, you end with an epilogue, which I think kind of captures so much of the of, of what we've discussed so far today. Um, you mention a, a, a writer who you actually refer to way back at the beginning. There, uh, the first Sainichi writer to win the Akutagawa uh, Prize, uh, Rikaisei, uh, who was born in Karafuto in, in southern Sakhalin, another Japanese colony of the period. Um, could you say something about what his story and, and, and his experience um, in uh, Japan um, uh, in the in the in the in the years after he returned uh, have have kind of how that's encapsulated lots of what we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Nikaisei is so interesting, so fascinating. In part, again, because I mean, thinking about um, maybe a buzzword, but say a border crossings. His entire life is just a series of border crossings, and then. Um, also um, being constrained by different borders at various times. So he's born, as you say, in Karafuto, which was uh, a colony of Japan at the time, to uh, Korean parents. So his parents had uh, moved there from colonial Korea. And in terms of um, kind of, you know, issues of just sheer census and so forth, he would have been counted technically as Japanese. Grows up, um, his first language is Japanese again because he's being educated under Japanese colonial educational system. After 1945, he and his family are repatriated to mainland Japan. Uh, and they're actually able to do so. They're included in a boat for Japanese repatriates because the father um, had a Japanese passport. He had managed to get his hands on a Japanese passport. And so um, they're moved to Hokkaido, in fact. Uh, and then from there, they move their way to the mainland. But um, again, after 1945, uh, the political status of Koreans is extremely uh, unstable, and the family decides to stay in Japan for the time being. But of course, that then leads to almost an involuntary immobility after 1952 when they're rendered stateless. And uh, Dikaise, throughout his writings, and I talk a little bit um, about uh, one particular one called Shoni no Inai Koke. So, um, a, a landscape in which there are no witnesses or a scene, a scene in which uh, there are no witnesses about how uh, even as, right, um, borders are shifting around him, he himself, right, uh, cannot help but remember, cannot help but um, talk about different types of borders that constituted him as a subject and that continue to constitute him. So um, really interesting issues related to, um, yeah, kind of different protagonists in his stories struggling to even articulate, to know how to articulate who they are, um, how they uh, figure into the landscape they find themselves, precisely because the terms themselves are shifting underneath them. And um, throughout this, uh, the Japanese language remains the primary mechanism and the fulcrum through which uh, coloniz- colonization, colonialism is not only thought about, but in which uh, it is operated, through which it operates. Mm, mm. I mean, so I just just re- reflecting on 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 the book as a whole, it's such a difficult thing to write about, given that uh, this sort of floating, this indeterminacy, um, is so much a part of the entire uh, 
picture that, that, that you're painting here. So I, I think um, you've done a terrific job of, of bringing it all together. Um, so maybe just a quick last question, since this is something you reflect on a bit towards the end of the book uh, too. Um, what of the fate or the, the, the concept of a wider Japanophone or Japanese language literature, um, what, what prospects are there for kind of seeing this in a broader frame? Um, is, how is uh, Japanese literature uh, seen in Japan today? And uh, where do Zainichi writers now fit into the picture? Thank you for the question. I uh, have been thinking about it actually a lot recently uh, because I was asked uh, just this past year to contribute a chapter on this upcoming MLA options for teaching volume on teaching post-war Japanese literature uh, in a North American context. Um, and this is, um, that, that is the question that I, I think about <laughs> in the essay. Um, and it, I guess I would say just, um, the past few decades has really seen an exciting and rich boom in scholarship on issues related to Japanese empire, uh, diaspora, post-colonialism. Uh, and I very much have benefited from this scholarship. I think many people have benefited from this scholarship. Uh, and yet, this myth of Japan as a homogeneous nation, I think, persists, uh, at least uh, among my students, among the general public. And so trying to think about why that might be, um, even as right um, issues involving Asian American multiculturalism, for example, are um, something that students readily acknowledge and are engaging with. Um, why is it that um, they can do that? But then when it comes to uh, thinking about Japanese literature, uh, suddenly right, those distinctions fall apart. And I don't think it's that they don't understand the question of diversity in East Asian contexts. Uh, rather, I think maybe that diversity itself needs to be uh, historicized and conceptualized for them. So um, while my research is primarily concerned with exploring issues of canonization in modern Japan and Korea, uh, very broadly defined uh, through the lens of the Japanese language, I hope that it helps highlight uh, how the formation of distinct literary canons is a mutually constitutive uh, and global process and one that is still very much ongoing to this day. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic uh, kind of uh, in, inviting way to end. I think uh, it, it, it encourages us to to think about these issues carefully and not to uh, make any presumptions uh, about uh, where the boundaries of of literary canons and and, and indeed uh, where you know the legacies of empire end. So, um, thank you very much, Christina. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for appearing. Um, before I let you go, perhaps uh, I could just ask you a final question, um, which is, uh, what is it that you're currently working on? What projects do you have on the go? My current project is, I think, like many people, in some ways, an extension, or um, it, it's it comes out of uh, this book. And I'm really interested actually in the discursive formation of what is now called hiage bungaku, so repatriation literature. And this question of repatriation comes into play. And I'm very much interested in um, the movements, right, of, for example, former Japanese colonizers coming back or being forced to come back uh, to mainland Japan after 1945. And what's striking is that um, many people end up producing memoirs uh, about their experiences. And a lot of Japanese women, uh, women in particular, are able to become quite successful, actually, in publishing these memoirs. So I'm interested in... Um, uh, not only how and why uh, this comes to be, but then also the form of the memoir itself, 
uh, form as producing a certain type of uh, narrative and that narrative, of course, then being a certain type of uh, remembering about the past. So, um, and again, as you mentioned, uh, this question of uh, kind of remembering versus forgetting is such a crucial one in post 1945 Japan. And I'll, a lot of people talk about um, the amnesia of empire, but what's so striking in looking at um, these different works that are produced about repatriation is that in some ways that memory of empire never goes away. And in fact, it's constantly talked about. It's constantly um, being brought up time and time again, not only by, um, for example, uh, kind of right-wing nationalists, but then also by leftist intellectuals like Tamishinsky and so on. But um, then I guess the larger question is then, what do we mean when we say uh, remembering versus forgetting? And uh, what does um, the form itself do to produce certain types of uh, narratives uh, versus others? So that's what I'm currently working on. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, I think from uh, from Hokkaido, I fully agree that, uh, that, that well, certainly uh, where Japan is concerned, the feeling of empire uh, doesn't uh, dissipate uh, particularly quickly um but that sounds like it'll be a wonderful compliment to uh, to your foregoing work so um can't wait to see what comes out of it um but christina uh, thank you very much again for appearing on the show uh, it was really thank you. To you uh listeners thank you uh as ever for listening to new books in east asian studies it's a podcast on the new books network as you well know and we will speak to you very soon goodbye <laughs>